it was action reward or action penalty. It was based on very narrow parameters, right and wrong, yes and no. So as it's blossomed, the power of it is the brain benefits by the more connections, the more variable opportunities. The years and the utero years are powerful influences, but I want people to know that no matter what level of development in the brain a child is born with or has even when they're two or three years old, neuroplasticity is always there. So we're all born with a new brain each day. So there's not a cutoff point when you can build a brain strength. There's not. So we don't know what's coming next. We need to prepare any learner for the now and with the critical thinking to evaluate future applications of technology and AI. You have to be open to alternatives and that's so critical in a global society for collaboration expansion of knowledge and creativity. You shouldn't draw conclusions from one application neuroscience research to your classroom or your business. What it does, it can confirm what you're doing and profoundly increase your success of taking what you know works and learning how it works, knowing what's happening in the amygdala and the reticular activating system and the prefrontal cortex. Be flexible. Do not invite learners to give what is the answer. That's just shutting down brains. What else, as I said before? So there is that word, what is the answer? Could be eliminated from education and life because there's needs to be more than one. So don't use the word the or the. Welcome to the Learner Space Conversations. My name is Gabriel Scheid and I'm here to host a space where every week we will be discussing how to change education so that these conversations are not needed anymore and change actually happens. We, we know better than we do in education and uh, on each episode we will try to explore keys to change. We will be hosting speakers, authors, thinkers, educators and, and why not even dreamers, uh, those who in the words of D.H. Lawrence live their dreams with open eyes and, and make them happen. In today's episode, we're honored to welcome Dr. Judy Willis. Judy is a, a, a living legend. She's a, a pioneer in the application of neuroscience to education, a neurologist, best-selling author, classroom teacher, international speaker. She has done research all over the world and uh, is a true trailblazer, one of the few people um, that I know at least who are able to combine both uh, uh, an impeccable and outstanding expertise with real hands-on experience in the classroom. Welcome, Judy. How are you? Thank you, Gabriel. 
I am delighted to be with you and be with you again after we connected through the conference in Argentina and through the learning. Help me out. We uh, well, I met you at various ASCD conferences. No, no, and the, 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 the learners, but the next learner space. Yeah, you were uh, part of the yes, learning group, space. Yes, I mean you yes. can. But the yes. learning space is an incredible collaboration that you edited, produced, and directed, and it's a great resource. Thank you, Judy. Judy, after seeing a lot and and and, and you've traveled the world, you've spoken to people. Um, You've been a, a a protagonist, not a witness, a protagonist in the emergence and effectiveness of neuroscience and education. When you stare at a blank screen these days, which I'm sure you rarely do, what excites you? What what gets you fired up? Wow. Um. Well, I'm going to give you today's example. I can't draw anything. I mean, my assessment of my drawing is a stick figure, but. I said, let me try, let me take a little class online. So the blank page is literally an invitation for me to create without anybody criticizing me. So to me, the lesson of a blank page, whether it's a student who hasn't learned a new language or whether it's uh, a parent who has never dealt with a crisis or a politician who doesn't know to, how to react to negative press. Those are blank pages and they're all opportunities. The big deal is for me, when I see a blank page or an opportunity, how can I empower the person with the blank page to feel okay about mistakes and to feel okay taking challenges? So a blank page is opportunity, challenges, but needs to be comfortable. Judy, after a um, wonderful, unique journey in, in being a, a pioneer in neuroscience applied to education and uh, having seen uh, the field evolve and, and having better tools, imaging, etc. You know, at the end of every lesson, they, they tell us teachers that we need to go back to our students and say, what have we learned so far? What have we learned so far about neuroscience and education in, you know, in, in, in a nutshell? Great question, Gabriel, because as I went from my neurology practice to the classroom and then to writing books, the biggest barrier for me to be able to communicate to other educators, parents, business people was what had preceded me that we now know are neuromyths. But neuroscience applied to learning was bad press. People were told that there's a left-right brain or you're only using 10% of your brain. Uh, there is things that weren't true. So as people heard these things and they were gradually debunked, they reasonably lost interest and credulity about neuroscience applied to learning. That was my biggest challenge, to support people's acceptance once again of the neuroscience of learning. The kind of implicit promise on, of neuroscience was that as we learn more about the brain, its, its inner workings and, and the such, 
that we would be able to trigger kind of semi-magical learning outcomes from certain stimuli. How far no, are we right. from that, if, if at all? You're right, Kay. Bill, going back to operant conditioning with mice or, or rats, which I did with mice and mazes. In any case, when people thought of changing behavior with neuroscience, it was action reward or action penalty. It was based on very narrow parameters, right and wrong, yes and no. So as it's blossomed, the power of it is the brain benefits by the more connections, the more variable opportunities. Oh, that Pythagorean theory theorem applies to that tree outside or the building or how build how I'm going to construct my room. So the application of knowledge is open, wide open, but can't be a yes and no. That's very important. I recently read a, a wonderful article that you wrote for uh, Utopia about um, triggering off uh, certain behaviors through good practice in, in young children. Um, is that the 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 field where there's better promise for the applications of neuroscience early childhood? Excellent again. Yes, there's a very rapid rate of neuroplasticity that takes place at three times during someone's development. The in utero last few months, the birth to three months, and then the school years from you know, preschool through high school, but different peaks. So knowing now that we can see when the brain, especially prefrontal cortex, is undergoing its most responsive phase, the most, if you practice something, you get twice as much connections. So I'll go back and just remind people what neuroplasticity is. That's the more firing, more wiring. That means that If you build a memory, if you build an experience, if you practice kicking a football, the more the brain does that, the brain is really trying to be efficient. So it will take that network of memory, add more dendrites, add more myelin, add more synapses, and become more rapid, more efficient, and more durable. So it's not forget forgotten. So yes, the early years, And the utero years are powerful influences, but I want people to know that no matter what level of development in the brain a child is born with or has even when they're two or three years old, neuroplasticity is always there. So we're all born with a new brain each day. So there's not a cutoff point when you can build a brain strength. There's not. So activation, use it or use, lose it, repetition, but more importantly, using what you know. So early childhood, great. You get more of that multiple connections and dendrites, but it's not a closure. Since you're, we're, we're thinking of early childhood, um, how do you see the role of technology um, to enhance or using your 
your your your work from one of your books to ignite learning uh can is there anything that technology can do in terms of speeding up that learning in terms of triggering off certain connections great because you look at a kid who's anywhere from my grandkids from two to infinity and they're so compelled to do a video game or do a solving puzzles and that's not the solution is not whoa that's too much screen time i mean i'm not going to debate screen time but technology brings the world in and lets us as you said use the fact that we know more than we do we need to prepare any learner not just for the now but for what's coming And who knew 10 years ago that parents, educators, politicians, business people would need to be computer literate and AI literate, use the resources. So unless it's a great tool and unless learners are introduced to it comfortably with achievable challenge and with desirable application, personal interest, you're going to lose a big power. But you cannot ignore it. It's going to be so awesome. And the next question is, well, what's next? Well, virtual reality. So we don't know what's coming next. We need to prepare any learner for the now and with the critical thinking to evaluate future applications of technology and AI. I am very tempted to follow this line of thought. Sorry, Julie, this is a topic that is dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> as AI, big data, virtual reality, augmented reality continue to evolve and they start um, invading our everyday life in ways that are even in non-discernible from, from the real experience. What, what can that do to our brains? Or is that, as, as Jung Sao would say, an evolutionary hangover? Is it something that, uh, are we ready for that or is? Uh... That's a continuing problem, but it's one that I think about, you think about, and we can address. It's one of the things we know, but what can we do about it? So guiding a learner to think critically is, inevitable and required. So the sources of information we have now are what we know. When I was in school, it was World Book Encyclopedia. So what we need, and now there's more bogus media than valid, and there's more and more information. Uh, so we need to prepare learners to evaluate the validity of information and the quality. How valuable is this source versus that? Because no one can do it for you anymore. So it will be a potent skill, invaluable skill, but it must be taught, experienced, given feedback and developed just like reading. But what about the kind of collective intelligence uh, that you know the combination of big data and ai can can kind of give rise to a, a 
a computer-based collective intelligence that may very well yield results that are unfathomable as of now. How do we deal with that? I love that that's in our future. And that's why going back, learners need to develop their own, not give a list, their own assessment for which value, what information is valuable and at what level it is valuable. So as there's more metadata, meta-analysis, great, but what comes in needs to be evaluated versus what's coming out. So many meta-analysis studies, just somebody looked up a classroom size and you know, links, oh, 18 studies, this one had five, this one had 20. So the important skill as we collect wonderful metadata, it's an incredible opportunity, as long as the recipients are aware of how the data was collected. What is the validity? Are they just taking all the studies of our classroom size? Or are they checking to see if each study had a control group, had a peer review? So it's so rich, but learners need to be experienced, educated, and feel powerful evaluating it. Judy, you, you just mentioned um, peer-reviewed studies and, and the such. With the hunger, the thirst there is for neuroscience findings, um, can you comment on how the media over overplays some findings? Like there's a you, you read a paper, you read a newspaper article or, or a headline, and they say neuroscience relates this with that, and then you go to the original study, and they only find a you know a very weak correlation, and they overblow it. Can can you can you comment on that? Another great thing that students need to learn from the beginning because correlation does not equal causation. So just because I say to you, uh, what color is typing paper? And you'd say white. Then I'd say to you, what is a cow drink? And most people's most rapid memory, most fastest to come to retrieval, is milk. Why is that? Because neuroplasticity strengthens the pathways that are most frequently used. So consumer bias, confirmation bias needs to be recognized so that each individual learns how to figure out their own rubric for the validity and the value. And there are great websites for that. There's one that shows an incredible causation and correlation. It's the combination of uh, it's, is it the margarine and butter. correlations. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, it's great. I love it. I mean, it, it shows this really tight connection. And, and Judy, isn't it, isn't, isn't it ultimately ironic that correlation is probably the most significant mathematical concept that one should learn at this age and time, and it's never taught in any school anywhere in the world? Right? Nope. Not, not taught. Not, I would, but when I was teaching algebra in middle school, I would give them extra credit when they would bring in from a newspaper or internet, a graph that was kind of bogus, like 
that it only showed the top of a bar graph. So it looks like, whoa, what a big difference, but it was only the top. So I would encourage their analysis of validity by analyzing it really, is that the full information. And peer review is getting fuzzy also. You can find journals, oh man, you have to see who funded the research yeah. and who reviewed it because otherwise you yeah, can say- Yeah, not, not every paper will give earth shattering conclusions. It's it's par for the course that sometimes you embark on some kind of research and you just get, you know, some, some moderately interesting results and that's part of the deal. And I work, I don't work for, I consult with the American Academy of Neurology when someone is ready to publish their outcome of their research. And they come to me and say, what is a valid interpretation of this in terms of application? An Alzheimer's drug, a Parkinson's drug. Is it valid to make that association? And I'm really strict and they're getting better. But you've got to see how many were in the sample group. Who are the evaluators? Has it been reinforced? Do you know that it's interesting that research you know, requires funds and people look at their research that doesn't pan out and say, I'm not gonna publish that. And they just keep going on what did pan out rather than revealing what pathways did not. That's important. Yeah, It's a kind of not natural research selection, right? Yes. <laughs> Judy, how do you love math at this age and time? And that's a loaded question. It's the title of one of your books. How, how do you love math now? How do I learn it or love it? No, how do you love math? It's it's one of your books, like learning to love yeah, math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Learning to love math. First of all, a disclaimer. Just because I taught middle school math, when people are figuring out how much they pay on a bill or anything with arithmetic, they look at me. Well, Judy, what is it? I really am not the expert in arithmetic. <laughs> Mathematics is taking data and making it analyzable, recognizable, and applicable. It has nothing to do with arithmetic. So I love when math poses a question. What why do we make graphs? What's the purpose of a graph? What could I do to make this graph more poignant? So I'm fascinated by applications of math and I would give my students calculators anytime they wanted them for arithmetic. I'm fascinated by the applications of mathematics. Yeah, and today it's more statistics and pattern recognition than, than an analytics and calculus, right? Yeah. Do you remember? Well, maybe not because you're younger, but when we were in school, we were taught mean, median, and mode, yeah. right? Yeah. I was never taught when to use those, each of those statistical analytic mm -hmm. systems. Never. So the homework was, all right, here are some numbers, find the mean, mode, median. That was not useful. Students need to, learners need to recognize when do I need that skill? When would that be powerful and helpful? Then they will want to know what you have to teach. You just mentioned a few minutes ago confirmation bias. Um, 
I'm going to give you a provocative statement and you won't, you may agree or disagree, but I have the feeling that in as much as neuroscience has advanced in its application to education, it's still at the stage where it's confirming what we already knew rather than giving us new insights. Yes, and I bet you, I don't bet, I, I'm sure that you could define confirmation bias better than I can, but I consider it the cow milk and white. What color is the paper? What is a cow drink? Milk. Our brain builds neural networks. It needs to get shortcuts, rapid activation of knowledge. So when we cross the street, we know if the car is not a Volvo, it's still a car. So we need to make generalizations to get through the day. Confirmation bias comes when those generalizations are generalizations are repeated, and then it comes up with a flying car. Well, somebody who can't imagine that would just say, no, that's not true. But it also happens with bias. If somebody once had a Caucasian person be mean to them, maybe twice, and they think that, oh, yeah, those Caucasian people are bad news. The brain builds that network reinforces it, and it's so hard for the brain to lose the efficiency of A is to B. It's really hard for the brain to let go of the confirmation. So the brain wants to get confirmation, and if it sees Caucasian person being nice, it will negate, divert, not absorb the alternative. It closes off opportunities, it closes off openness, and it causes heuristics, bias, stereotyping. It's important for people to recognize confirmation bias, to realize that the brain is doing the right thing. You have to make a, an assumption that this thing with a motor driving down the road is a car. You have to be open to, well, maybe not everything with a motor is a car. You have to be open to alternatives. And that's so critical in a global society for collaboration, expansion of knowledge and creativity. Judy, um, neuroscience is confirming what we know about great teaching practice. Uh, it's giving us- You should some... be giving this presentation, not me, Gabriel. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is, yeah, we, we like when I when I read some of your articles, it's like, yeah, of course. Now, now there is an explanation to why great teachers have been great teachers. How far are we from any breakthrough insights on learning uh, as, as predicted by neuroscience? Okay. I love the way you phrased it. That's why I would suggest you be the uh, <laughs> spokesperson. But as I tell educators, parents, business people, if something works, and neuroscience says it doesn't or says it's wrong, don't give it up. If it's not expensive, if it's not annoying, painful, boring, unattractive to the learner, if it's desirable. So if it's not too expensive, if it's desirable and it's effective, keep doing what you've been doing. Teachers have been, you know, whatever, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, teaching has been an art form 
for long before I started teaching, although I may be older than them. But the fact is that learning is an important transition and it requires a foundation of knowledge, flexibility to other perspectives and all neuroscience can do. That's why I say, don't literally take any neuroscience research and apply it because neuroscience research, very controlled, a, control, a good ones, very controlled group, uh, regular group, different, two, large enough long-term research only, the outcomes only apply to the lab. So you cannot draw, you shouldn't draw conclusions from one application neuroscience research to your classroom or your business. What it does, it can confirm what you're doing and profoundly increase your success of taking what you know works and learning how it works, knowing what's happening in the amygdala and the reticular activating system and the prefrontal cortex. Oh, that's why they remember so much more when we learn it in a song versus a poem. Yeah, so, and, in, and in terms of that, um, one of the university accepted truths these days is that <clears throat> we need to teach children well, that we need to nurture their self-esteem, we need to take care of their... Uh, desire and will to succeed that we need to make them believe in themselves and it's great that neuroscience is now backing up what what may sound counterintuitive or countercultural to the even to the current generation of parents exactly gabriel it seems intuitive and it's what great teachers have been doing all along but as you explained it technically or specifically we need to embrace it. It's reinforcing the things that worked. And when you expand the things that you've been doing that work with the understanding of how it works, you have a whole new field of ways to apply your success to different students, different topics, different experiences. So the information is there. We need to nurture through social economic limitations or challenges and through emotional experiences, positive experiences, the confidence, creativity, and, and analysis skills of every person as early as we can. What's the difference between this and this? When I am asked to, I was once asked to uh, say what would be best for children who will never be in a classroom. They're refugees, they're, they don't have a brick and mortar classroom. And after a lot of thought, it was when they ask a question, respond by saying, what do you think? And, or when they respond, asking them, oh, what else? Those two things, what do you think? when they ask me, what else? Those are really critical questions. Is metacognition the holy grail? Is it the kind of thing that you, never, you can never get enough of? Yeah, and, and that word really scared me when I went to my teacher education program. I said, oh my goodness, I don't know this. I, you know, it's just like, it was a scary word, but 
holding back when you're presenting or lecturing or dealing with kids, um, holding back on the vocabulary is important. Then taking what they've learned and saying, ah, so as they get feedback, so you've been using metacognition, the knowing about what you know. Yeah, it's and become, that was it's very helpful. A, a buzzword now, and it's uh, yeah, like many other words, it's kind of lost its meaning. Judy, along the same lines as before, um, in terms of what what we see in the in the near horizon for for education, one of the areas that that always I was going to say comes to mind, and it's more than it's actually not a good phrase because it's uh, it comes to to body is mind body connection. And uh, and how our our mind can can our, our attitude our our mindset can medically even influence our our health our body our, our experience. Uh, what's what's the if you could give us the state of the art on, on neuroscience of that at, at this point? Well, let's go back to the example I said about someone who hasn't experienced a whole lot of Caucasians, and the two they met were mean. And so they've evaluated and developed a mindset that Caucasian skin is bad. Well, what neuroscience is showing us in the brain is the repeated loops that the brain falls back to. What we're getting in the next generation of neuroscience, things like diffusion tensor imaging, where we don't just see the active sections of the brain, but we see the circuits and connections. What we're seeing from that is that the more ways we get to evaluate, experience information causes these cross connections that sustain in the brain. Like the research on uh, musicians in a scanner. When they're asked, they're given, they're in the scanner, but they're given like a little keyboard and they're asked to uh, improvise a new piece. So you see the usual brain activity and the motor or sensory, but moments before they actually play their improvised piece, you see the brain having so many cross connections, multi-sensories between hemis among hemispheres. And those networks are critical. So. We see the moment of inspiration and creativity. That's what we need to reach for. And that is the next generation of neuroscience. What is most effective in building the multi-sensory, multi multiple use neural networks, because they will connect. We found that if you hear something and feel something and move like something, each area where it's stored is activated but the more you cross use what you know and apply it, the more developed those networks are. So innovation, creativity, multiple applications are empowered. We now see it on neural imaging. You know, Stephen Akmanovich, he's a, he's a musician and an improviser. He says that improvisation is not lack of preparedness, but rather a lifetime of preparation to get you ready for the moment. Truly. You cannot jump into something without a foundation. You really can, you need the foundation. And when they did that study with non, 
uh, professional, professional musicians, you didn't see the cross connectivity. When they did it with ballet dancers and none, there was a huge difference. So it doesn't mean we should just all improvise everything. It means that you really need the strong background. Just like you can't start playing winning tennis unless you know the foundational skills. So absolutely, I agree. You need the foundation. You can't just dive off the diving board and expect to make a perfect dive. Judy, um, meditation, mindfulness, there's, there's been extensive research on, on the benefits. Uh, there's been you know, many, many studies on, on neuroimaging of uh, monks that meditate, etc. cetera. Uh, why, why is it so hard for it to be considered a mainstream application in education? <laughs> Another really good one. I went to Tibet not to research that. So I'm not like only going to places to research them. I was lecturing nearby. So I got to speak in the monastery to some of the monks, quite frankly, and the one, only one, you know, the, whatever level he was at. And I said, what do you think of the information that the, med the more people have meditated, the more powerfully they can get into the mental state of analysis, not just creativity, analysis, evaluation, and creativity, and mindfulness, which would be having an experience without judging it. Okay, so something's coming in. It's sort of against, it's sort of related to, to cognitive flexibility. Be in the moment. And that's what he was explaining to me. He said, each day is fresh. The more I've been in the meditative state, the better I've gotten out of it subsequently, but there's no perfection. If you're trying to reach perfection, you're in the wrong business. So the data is there, the experiences are there. Um, the reason people seem to reject it, because people equate meditation with religion and are biased. Confirmation bias works the other way. Yeah, so or, or because like, like with neuroscience, it may have been trivialized by, by the media. Yeah, yeah. So, oh my goodness, is, I'm not letting my kid go to a school without vaccinations or that teaches mindfulness because they're religious or they're political. Or it's a waste of time. <laughs> yes. Find me a better one and I'll be open to it. I am not into confirmation bias. If you find and can do some studies on something else that makes somebody in the state of mind where they're willing to let their thinking build on what they already know. Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So getting into that state where you really believe you understand something, that's transcendental. Trans, yeah, you know the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transcendent. Yeah. Judy, I have two more questions. One, one is easy, one is hard. I'll, I'll start with a hard one. Sure. Those of us who are in, in education are perplexed witnesses to despite how despite we know 
we know a lot about what works in education, what we should do from a moral standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, from an educational standpoint, from a pedagogical standpoint, things don't change. How can neuroscience explain the collective rigidity of the teaching profession? <laughs> That's wow. a difficult one. <laughs> Great question. I hope you pose it to more and more people because let's start with confirmation bias. If you went to school or you were a student and the best way to learn something was reading it over and over again, and you've done that for 20 years, then it's going to be hard to make that shift based on neuroscience that really it takes one third of the time if you are self-test. Um, okay, do I know this? Do I know this? Self-test, self-grade. So it's hard for people who've learned one way to be cognitively flexible to transition. It's really hard. I mean, so there is no neuroplasticity in pedagogy. That's what you're saying. <laughs> I hope there will be. I hope. Otherwise, we're really messed up. But maybe, maybe that's the next frontier for neuroscience. Find that there are some pedagogical neurons that do not regenerate. Maybe it's that. <laughs> yes, because no matter how old we are, we have a new brain each day. Every experience, every thought, every application of our emotional background and our knowledge background, every time we activate those circuits, they become stronger. And if we activate them in new arrangements, sensory together with motor. Yeah, yeah, but what, what I'm saying, Judy, is maybe scientists will find a, a hitherto unknown area of the brain where the pedagogical, <laughs> the teaching neurons reside. And those, I'm just kidding, and those teaching neurons do not regenerate. That's why we don't change. Absolutely. Let's go for that one, Gabriel. I'm, I'm on board. I'll vote for that. Okay, we'll co-publish a paper on that. Sure. Okay, thank you, Judy. F final question. After all that you've seen and having toured the world, the one day you wake up and, and uh, the magic fairy comes to you and says, Judy, I will grant you one wish for for education in the world. What What would that wish be? Be flexible. Do not invite learners to give what is the answer. That's just shutting down brains. What else, as I said before? So there is that word, what is the answer, could be eliminated from education and life because there's needs to be more than one. So don't use the word the or the. Thank you, Judy. That, that was wonderful. Judy, where, where can our listeners follow your work? Twitter, blog? Twitter, Judy Willis, and website, J. Willis Neuro. No. Yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll post that on yeah. the site when, when okay. we publish it. That's it. Because on my website, they can link to the hundreds of articles, videos, <laughs> etc. Enjoy it, but don't be hung up. If one of them is, seems boring, go on to the next, but evaluate it with your confirmation bias in mind. If you think something is too hard, well, maybe if you watch it again or hear it again, that doesn't just apply to what I do. Don't just write something off as too hard or not applicable. Let your brain explore it. And then if you're bored, if it doesn't seem applicable, 
That's it. Thank you, Judy. I'll hold on to my own confirmation bias. Before we started, I, I thought this was going to be a wonderful conversation, and it was. So th thank God for that confirmation bias. Thank you, Judy. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You can find this one and all past and future episodes at conversations.thelearnerspace.org. Once again, that is conversations.thelearnerspace.org, where you will also find a complete summary of each of the episodes, as well as pointers and links to uh, the resources associated with uh, each of our guests. It was truly wonderful to be able to learn from Judy and her many years of experience and expertise in uh, this promising but yet nascent field of neuroscience. Greatest takeaways, uh, neuroplasticity is there uh, waiting for us and uh, we, we are born with a, with a new brain each day, uh, which means that all of us who are engaged in these learning activities are, are doing something right. Thanks and until the next one.